We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Jake and Deb, greetings. These are some former church members who are now missionaries in Italy. And they are back for a while, so we are so glad you guys are here today. They're going to be back with us in a few months as well and probably be sharing with us in the service. Is Italy in the World Cup still? Okay, I'm not trying to offend you. I just didn't keep up with soccer, so uh, sorry. Anyways, uh, anybody a big World Cup fan in here? All right, so we do have some soccer folks in the room. It's not really an American thing, I know, but... um, There are a lot of people that really get into it. So I hope for those of you that care, you're enjoying it, even though America was not good enough to even make it, okay? So we are going to be looking, continuing our study this morning in the book of Acts. So we have looked at chapter 1, where the disciples are standing, staring up into heaven, wondering what to do next. And then Trey taught us about the Holy Spirit and how they were filled with the Spirit, ready to go and perform the work that God had for them. And then last week, Bob told us a story at the end of chapter 2 that kind of gives us a picture of what they were doing. They were gathering together, they were praying together, they were breaking bread, and then they were engaging in fellowship with one another. So what's happening in chapter 4 is they are out going around, sharing the good news of Jesus with people, and of course, the religious authorities do not like it, and so some of them are arrested. But Luke tells us in chapter 4 that while they were out sharing the good news of Jesus, over 5,000 people came to faith in Christ that day. So they were released, and then they were asked, in whose name are you doing all of these crazy things? Of course, the answer was Jesus of Nazareth. Peter and John were told to never speak of Jesus again. And of course, they disobeyed, as we all should if we're ever told to stop talking about Jesus. So we get to the end of chapter 4, and Luke provides us another summary statement about what the disciples are experiencing during this time. So what you see here in 32 through 37 of chapter 4 is a summary of what has just happened earlier in chapter 4. Here we go, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we're still early on in the process of the Holy Spirit coming upon the believers, but they are radically changed. 
by what has happened to them. So what we see in these small section of verses this morning are four characteristics that if we would model what we see the early followers of Jesus doing, we as a church would be better off. The first thing we see them doing this morning is they were united in their purpose. They are of one heart, one mind, and one soul. Now those of you in this room that have ever been a part of any organization or any sports team or any church for that matter that is not unified, you realize how incredibly frustrating that can be. When you have everybody going in their own direction, having their own ideas with no central purpose, no central vision in mind, typically things don't turn out well. But what we see here is they are of one purpose. And it's not that complicated. The purpose Jesus himself spelled out right before he ascended into heaven when he tells them in Matthew 28 exactly what he wanted them to do. The purpose for the church of Jesus Christ is not rocket science. It is not difficult. So let's unpack what that verse talks about. All right? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Number one, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go. Any church that ignores the command of Jesus to go, eventually will become divided. Because when you lose the focus of reaching those outside of the church, all you do is turn inward. And when you turn inward, division begins to happen. Then he tells them to make disciples, which is actually, as you know, the main verb in that sentence, make disciples. Of all the things that we do here, gathering together in worship, providing programming, going out into the community. If we neglect to make disciples, it's all for naught. And then Jesus tells them, while you're going and making disciples, you better be doing it according to the commands that I have given you. So every week when we come up here and we study in small groups together, we're not teaching through self-help books Okay, we're not teaching through what somebody else has said about the Bible. We want to stay focused on the teachings of Jesus himself. When we shy away from going and making disciples and teaching people about Jesus, we are setting ourselves up to not be unified in our purpose. Luke actually himself gives us a snapshot of what the believers were doing in order to stay unified. And it actually occurs one verse earlier, in verse 31. This is what he says. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they were unified because they were praying together. Because they were filled with the Spirit and they were proclaiming the Word of God boldly. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, The Church Before the Watching World, 
I've mentioned Francis Schaeffer a lot because I'm on a Francis Schaeffer kick. It's been like six books in a couple of months for me on Francis Schaeffer, okay? This is excellent quote that he gets out of this book, and he says that the church is responsible for simultaneously exhibiting two principles, okay? The principle of the love of God and the principle of the holiness of God. And he says, when we elevate one above the other, the church will suffer. If all we do is talk about the love of God and never mention the holiness of God, we are shortening the character and nature of who God is. And at the same time, if all we talk about is the holiness of God and the standard that we can never live up to without mentioning the love of God, we create a God who is a harsh judge. And so what Schaefer is saying is both the love of God and the holiness of God must be upheld simultaneously together. If we don't tell people about the love of God, then why would they even want God? But if we don't tell people about the holiness of God, how can they ever see their need for a Savior to forgive them of their sin? So every week, as we go about our lives, we want to uphold these two principles that are both equally important. The love of God and the holiness of God. And if we do that, we can remain unified in our purpose. Second thing we see the believers doing is they are practicing all the time generosity. Now, I know when some of you read those verses, you begin to trickle into thinking that somehow Luke and the early believers are talking about communism. Senator McCarthy, right, in the Red Scare, here we go. No, we're not talking about any economic system here. We're not talking about any form of government here. To take what we know as communism or capitalism and place it on top of the biblical text does a disservice to the text. There's a big fancy word for it. It's called anachronistic. It means taking something from a certain time period and applying it to another time period. The early believers have no idea what capitalism is. They have no idea who Karl Marx is. So don't look into this text and start freaking out that Luke is somehow endorsing some form of government that we don't agree with, okay? But what we do see happening here is that the earliest followers of Jesus had no concept whatsoever of private property or of individual ownership, those things that we as Americans sometimes hold on to so dearly. It didn't matter to them. When they saw a need, they laid it at the apostles' feet. And this is difficult for us because we have so much property that's ours. And what is mine is mine and what is yours is often yours. But we don't see that picture very much in the early church, do we? They practiced a form of generosity that you and I 
oftentimes don't understand. But don't miss this. Generosity is not about giving away of your time and your resources and your money. Biblical generosity is realizing that all of those things were never yours to begin with. And when you realize that everything you own, everything you have, is not yours, that is when generosity begins to happen. Some of you in this room might know who Andrew Carnegie is, one of the wealthiest Americans that ever lived. He was the forerunner of what later became U.S. Steel. Unbelievable amounts of money. Ended up giving away 90% of his wealth before he died. I looked up how much this would be in 21st century money and just take my word for it. He has more than all of us will ever have combined. Okay, Very wealthy man. He kept a journal, and he regularly not only reflected what happened in his career, but he also made notes to himself to remind himself about things that would be happening in his life. And I want to read to you one excerpt from one of his journal entries. This is what he said. All right, he's talking about money here. He said, man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must inordinately therefore push. Should I be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character? To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at 35. But during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading. So Andrew Carnegie recognized that money for him, was going to be a huge problem. And in this journal entry written at the age of 33, because I can do math, two years left, at 35 he was going to resign his business. Anybody want to take a guess what happens two years later? He does not resign his business. Because money is too powerful sometimes. Even though he gave away 90% of his wealth, the more you read on Andrew Carnegie and those that worked for him, they say he was very much still a stingy man in how he paid his workers. The reality is, every one of us in this room, the reason we don't oftentimes practice generosity is because we're missing it. We're missing what generosity is really about. Tim Keller wrote a book a few years ago called Counterfeit Gods. And this is what he says. He's talking about idolatry and he says you will never remove an idol from your life. You'll never be able to remove it. All you can do is replace it. So, if you're not generous, 
if that's something that's a struggle for you. You will never be able to remove stinginess, which would be the opposite, from your life. All you can do is replace it. And you replace it with Jesus. You look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, who we all know was the most generous man who ever lived. He gave of his time, of his resources, and ultimately gave of his life for you and I. So we look to Jesus. Any idol that we have in our life, we replace it with Jesus. We also see the early believers, they're providing for the needs of those around them. Now the church in Jerusalem at this time is full of wealthy people and poor people. And we see the wealthy giving up of their possessions giving up of their fields and even their houses and taking those proceeds and laying it all at the disciples' feet. They were providing for the needs of those in the church. Which is a reminder to all of us that those of us in this room should be taking care of one another. Brother and sister, you cannot live this life in isolation. You need to live in community with those of us in this room. And when you have a need, please tell us. We will be with you at the hospital. We will cry with you when you lose a loved one. We want to meet the needs of the people in this room. That is what being the body of Christ is all about. So we provide for the needs, not just of our individual church, but the church of Jesus Christ at large. We see this in our own congregation shortly after Hurricane Katrina when we invite Franklin Avenue to come and worship with us for almost two years or maybe over two years. And now we have a predominantly African-American church and a predominantly white church that are better partners in ministry together because we cared for each other's needs in a very vulnerable and difficult time. But what I don't want you leaving here today thinking is that Luke is giving us an option here. He is not saying care for the needs of the church at the expense of everyone else around you. He's also not saying, take care of everyone else around you and the people inside the church will be okay. It is not an either or. We don't pick a side. It's a both and. We care for those in our body and we care for those outside of our body. Simultaneously. Many of you might have read the series that was in NOLA.com within the last couple of weeks called The Children of Central City. Jerome, Lucky, and his brother Jair were asleep one night in their house and they woke up the morning of September 11th, 2011 
They walked into the kitchen to get breakfast. And their mother was laying in a pool of blood, dead. She'd been shot during the night. They had no idea. The premise of these articles is to share with the city of New Orleans that the number one factor for at-risk children and youth today in our city is not the breakdown of the family. It is not violence. It is not gangs. It is not drugs. It's trauma. They interviewed 300 children in Central City Public Schools and one in five said that they had witnessed a murder. Over half said they knew somebody personally that was either a victim or involved in homicide in some way. And what these articles are sharing is that the reason we have an epidemic of crime and violence and educational issues in our city has to do with this issue of trauma. The way children in school process and retain information is lower. Impulse control is lower. Ability to regulate emotions is lower. They are in a constant state, the articles say, of fight or flight. So when you and I experience something we don't like, we fight or we fly. And eventually we regulate ourselves. But the researchers in these articles are saying that these children are going to school in a constant state of fight or flight, never being able to regulate their emotions. So they struggle in school. And when education becomes a problem, many drop out. And then when they drop out, they turn to drugs and violence and gangs and crime. Trauma, they say, is the factor. I read these articles as somebody who has spent a lot of time, not in Central City, but in the Ninth Ward. And I thought to myself, we have to do something. Nathan is going to post these articles on our Facebook page. I'm not prescribing any solution today, but I would encourage you to check out our Facebook page and read these articles. And pray and ask God, what can the Church of Jesus Christ in New Orleans do about this problem? We provide for the need. Those of you in this room, we provide for your needs. Those of outside the walls of this church, we have an obligation to provide for their needs as well. And then last, we see this interesting story about Barnabas, who comes onto the scene at the very end of chapter 4. And what Luke actually does in the beginning of chapter 5 is he compares Barnabas and another story that we're not going to look at today, Ananias and Sapphira, which I'm sure you have heard what happens to them. 
They bring an offering before the apostles, but they hold a little bit of that money back and they're struck down dead. We thought this would be a much better sermon to talk about today than that. All right? We're not skipping it on purpose, but it would have been a difficult one to talk about. So you have Barnabas, who obviously is a wealthy man, a Levite, so he's a Jew. He sells this field that he has. And Luke tells us that he laid all the proceeds from that cell down at the apostles' feet. And then in Acts 5, we also see somebody selling something, but instead of laying it all down, they keep some back. Which makes me wonder, do we understand what a sacrifice actually is? Because both people are bringing something before the apostles, but only one person's gift is recognized as authentic. So when we sacrifice for the kingdom, we need to understand that a sacrifice must cost us something. There has to be some void involved. If you're giving to the church financially, Do you feel the pinch? Do you feel the difference that giving up of that money makes? When you decide to volunteer in one of our care effect groups or teach a small group, do you feel the time difference that that makes in your life? How you could be using that time for something else. So, following Jesus always forces us to ask ourselves, are we sacrificing to follow him? It's interesting about Barnabas here. He's introduced into the narrative of Acts for the first time here. And as we continue in Acts all summer long, you're going to learn more and more about Barnabas, but I'm going to kind of give you a sneak peek here. He's influential to the book. You know, Paul is converted later on in Acts. Excuse me, at this time he's still Saul. He's converted and he goes to the early followers of Jesus and they are horrified that he wanted to even speak to them. But you know who stands up and supports Saul? It's Barnabas. He's the one that stands with him here and says, you know what, I know this guy's done a lot of bad stuff. But I'm here to vouch for him. He's going to do good things for God. It's Barnabas who goes out with Saul on the very first missionary journey recorded in Acts 13, okay? They go to Cyprus. They go to Antioch and they circle back around. It's Barnabas, John Mark, and Saul who were on this first missionary journey together. And then in Acts chapter 15, which we're going to look at on July 15th, in two weeks, it's Saul and Barnabas who go to the Jerusalem conference together. And they are dialoguing with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, trying to get them to understand that the gospel is growing like wildfire among the Gentiles. What are we going to do about it? 
That's Barnabas. Every step of the way as the church of Jesus Christ grows, Barnabas becomes a very significant portion of that. So I ask myself this morning, what if Barnabas, what if he didn't sacrifice for the kingdom? What if he kept that field? What if he didn't lay the proceeds of that sale at the disciples' feet? Of course, we all know that God would have still worked his magic. But Barnabas was obedient. So we ask ourselves this morning, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what are you sacrificing to follow him? Your time, your resources, your energy, your relationships. We all make decisions about the things that are important to us. Last check, we still have 3.14 billion people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. Representing 7,088 unreached people groups. Think for a moment how many people that is. Let's ask ourselves this morning, as we examine our own hearts, what we see here in Acts 4, are we unified in our purpose? Are we practicing generosity? Are we providing for the needs of those in this room and the needs of those outside the church? And are we sacrificing for the kingdom of God so that 3.14 billion people can shrink? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your spirit would speak to us. God, as we examine our own hearts, our own motives, Lord, help us to realize that everything we have is yours. Make us more generous. Help us to be unified in making disciples in this room, in this city, and around the world. God, I pray as we continue to read through this book together as a church this summer, that every day we read in Acts, we would be reminded about how you work in your church. God, search our hearts. Convict us of where we fail you. Help us to be all in on following you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.